So we're going to be looking at Jesus in the garden. And I titled it Alone and Yet Not Alone. Alone and Yet Not Alone. So um, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. And then I'll get into the lesson so we can make room for the main service. Lord God in heaven, we come now, Father, to you. And uh, considering what it is that we're getting ready to look at, and um, Lord, it's um, both very humbling, Father, and something that is just way, way beyond my comprehension, what Jesus had gone through, what Jesus had experienced so father i pray lord that you would bless this time and we're going to be dependent upon your spirit because i know how it goes sometimes with these things um as uh, something is said or touched upon or read uh, your spirit would uh, touch each and every one of us individually and and bring something to our minds and some sort of instructing to our personal hearts and and that's what we pray for lord because i certainly don't claim to to know everything i don't claim to be able to to cover this passage in the way that uh, it rightly deserves so we're just simply going to trust in you to teach us and and uh, and to bless us as we look at this we thank you in jesus's name amen so let's go ahead and i'll read this uh, these these verses and then we'll get right into it But starting here in verse 39, it says, And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, and strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Now Luke here, he doesn't um, record all the details that we'll find in the other Gospels. But apparently um, the supper is over. And while all the Gospels will provide all those uh, missing details um, you know, that uh, fit in here between verses uh, 38 and 39... It certainly is clear that supper is over now, and they're starting to make their way to uh, the Mount of Olives, which is just on the, I believe, the east side of Jerusalem, just right there, right up next to the city of Jerusalem. And this was a place where it says here that Luke says he was want, a place where he was want to go. And that word want uh, simply means it was a place of custom. It was something that he... He was always accustomed to going while he was there in Jerusalem. It was one of his favorite places to go. Uh, in fact, in Luke 21:37, when we read after he was done teaching in the temple uh, at night, that's where he went. He went to the Mount of Olives, and, and that's where he and his disciples would spend the evening. And uh, that was a place where um, he could uh, get away from the crowds, a place uh, of seclusion, uh, 
probably a pretty place probably a pretty place and uh, just a place where he could go with his men and and just rest Um, so that was something that he was he was habitually that he habitually did Uh, but on this particular night it was very very significant that he would go to this garden Um, if you stop and think about it uh, mankind's woes began in a garden didn't it with Adam and Eve and now we have the son of man entering into a garden uh, to begin delivering mankind from his woes so it's it's kind of neat when you stop and think about things like that now we learn from Matthew 26:36 and Mark 14:32 that there was a place there called Gethsemane and Gethsemane, Gethsemane was located right there on this this mountain where, uh, or this little mount where Jesus and his men went to. And they all knew of this place. Even Judas knew of this place. And so when they started to leave wherever it was that they had their supper, uh, I think the disciples understood. I think they knew exactly where they were headed. And uh, if you guys know anything about the Bible, you know that the names of people and places in the Bible, uh, if you dig a little deeper, uh, you discover there's some really rich, rich stuff there uh, when you look up some of these names. Now, does anybody know what the word Gethsemane means? Anybody? You may have heard of it. Well, it means olive press is what it means. Gethsemane means the olive press because there was an olive grove on this mount. I think I think there still is some olive trees on this mount, and those who would work the the olive trees that that little garden there, uh, they would take the olive berries and they would press them on that site. When I lived in Athens, Greece, uh, my yard was a, a little olive grove. Grove. We had olive trees in the front of the house, and then we had a walled backyard that was fairly large. And I bet we had like maybe 16, 17 olive trees in the in the backyard. And what the folks would do, they would come and they would spread these big, um, I don't know what it was, like a net almost under these trees. And then they'd take these long poles and they'd get up there and they'd shake the branches of the trees and all these berries would fall down on these these nets and then they'd gather all these nets up and they'd, they'd cart them off to, to be pressed for oil. And so that's pretty much what I, I picture this Garden of Gethsemane like, just kind of like my backyard in Greece with all these olive trees around. And uh, olive oil plays a significant role in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 30, uh, we learn that it was used uh, mixed with other aromatic spices uh, to sanctify the tabernacle and, and anoint Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. So olive oil was used to anoint uh, the priest. Also in uh, 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 16, it was Samuel who anointed Saul and David with oil, right? Uh, with olive oil when they were chosen to become uh, kings. Uh, in Matthew 6:17. Um, olive oil was used as part of one's daily washings. You know, you wash your face and stuff, and one of the last things that you would do is that you would, uh, you would anoint your head with oil. And what this typified with the Jew was uh, consecrating one's thoughts to the Lord 
and to his law for that day. So when you anointed your head with oil, it was one of those reminders to consecrate your your mind, your thoughts to the Lord. Uh, on the other hand, uh, abstaining from olive oil um, was a sign of mourning. Uh, like in Daniel chapter 10, he used to do, you know, he used to anoint his head with oil, but instead, uh, because he mourned for his people, he put ashes on his head. So the oil was replaced with ashes. Um, James 5.14, Mark 6.13, they all speak of some sort of medical or, or therapeutic value uh, with olive oil. And uh, medical science has, has found that there is some... Um, benefits to extra virgin olive oil it does have some antibacterial properties it it is a it does help with viral infections and microbial uh, infections and and some uh, other infectious diseases but again you know it's you know it's it's a very mild um a mild uh, what would you call it antibiotic type of property kind of like honey honey also is the the same thing um, another use for olive oil is found in 2818 where Jacob poured oil on the altar so olive oil is used at times as a, as an act of worship when you you pour it out and some people even in first John 227 that talks about the anointing uh, some people relate to the oil to the Holy Spirit in the anointing of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 2.27. So the Holy Spirit, or oil, is a, could be a type of, of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, I shouldn't say finally, there's probably other things that I wasn't able to, to look up. Uh, there's another mention of oil in um, Hebrews 1.8 and verse 9. And uh, it talks about... Um, the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in glory on the right hand of the Father. It says in Hebrews 1.8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So there's that oil of gladness uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ was anointed with by the Father in heaven. Uh, but here in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the place of the oil press, and I have no idea if that's what they look like or not, but the place of the oil press, Jesus is about ready to be pressed in the Spirit as he comes to pray about what he was sent to earth for by the Father. Um... Also, um, about this place, about this mount, uh, it also plays a big part in the history of God's people. Um, also in the life of Jesus Christ as well. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, when you look up these things. Uh, it was on the Mount of Olives when, um, you might remember when King David, because of his son Absalom, had to flee Jerusalem. It was there on the mount that uh, King David wept over the city. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, it says, And David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet and wept as he went up and had his head covered. He went barefoot, and all the people that was with him covered every man his head, and they went up weeping as they went. So we, we read about King David way, way back then when he had 
to uh, leave Jerusalem weeping, weeping. Um, Solomon, <laughs> his son, a little different aspect here in Second uh, Kings 11.7. Um, Solomon kind of desecrated this place because of his wives. He built um, he built uh, altars to his wives' false gods upon Mount Olives. So he kind of desecrated the place. In Ezekiel eleven twenty three, in his vision, Ezekiel saw God's uh, Shekinah glory leave the temple and leave the city, and then kind of abode or hovered over. Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives. So when the people of Jerusalem had reached the state of absolute apostasy where God could no longer abide in the temple and abide in the city where he would put his name, it shows the Shekinah glory leaving Jerusalem and just kind of resting on Mount Olivet for a bit before completely leaving out of the land. That's kind of kind of an interesting thing to think about too. And then in Nehemiah 8.15, we see the people who have returned from, from exile from Babylon and the cities, you know, pretty well put back together. Uh, they celebrate the Feast of Booths and they take olive branches from the Mount of Olives and and they celebrate the Feast of Booths. You know what the Feast of Booths typify? Anybody? <laughs> it typifies the millennial rest of the future kingdom of the Messiah. So uh, that also is associated with the Mount of Olives. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting to think about too. Um, in connection with Jesus. It's kind of interesting because um, when Jesus came to Jerusalem on that final week in Luke 19, he was up on this mountain and he looked out over Jerusalem. And do you remember what Jesus did when he was on that mount looking out over Jerusalem? Well, like David before him, he wept over the city. He wept over the city. And also it's from this mount that Jesus got on the back of the foal of the of the ass and rode into the city just like David of old who returned back into Jerusalem it was also upon this very same mount when the his disciples asked uh, when shall these things come to pass when the end times come come about so th- there's a lot going on on this little tiny hill just outside of uh, outside of Jerusalem and now we see Jesus here in this very same place uh, where this olive press is, and he's getting ready to go into into an agony, into an agony about what he's ready to ready to face. The same mountain also after his resurrection. What took place on this mountain after his resurrection? Does anybody remember that? <laughs> Is anybody awake? <laughs> That's where he rose into heaven. That's where he ascended into heaven, isn't it? When he took his disciples out and he was talking to them and they were asking about the kingdom, it was from this very mount that Jesus ascended up, up into heaven. And here's the last question. Do you know what other significant event will take place on that mountain in regards to Jesus Christ? Yep, that's when he comes again. 
Zechariah 14.3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. I remember reading an article years ago where they were wanting to build a a, um, a construction site. I'm not sure what it was. I don't know if it was a administrative building or a hotel or whatever. But when they started excavating and started looking around, they discovered a fault line, a major fault line that ran right smack dab down the middle of Mount Olives, on the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus steps on that mountain, that fault line is just going to split and create a great valley. And it's in that valley that the people that are in Jerusalem are going to run into for safety as Jesus comes and, and takes on the, uh, the nations and the Antichrist. So what is interesting to me about all this, in the Old Testament, you're only going to find two times when the Mount of Olives, the actual word is used, Mount Olivet or the Mount of Olives, there's only two times that you're going to actually find that word uh, used or that title used. The first time is when King David was leaving the city and was wait, uh, weeping over the city, so he was departing out of the city. And the second time that you read about Mount of Olives being specifically mentioned in the Old Testament is when Jesus Christ returns and puts foot, sets, sets foot upon that mount at his second coming. So it's kind of like a picture of what we're seeing now with the Lord. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's going to this mount. He's weeping. They're going to take him out. They're going to crucify him outside of the city. The next time he comes back is when he's going to set foot on that mountain. He's going to set foot on that mountain. Of yes, yes. Ah, oh, you're right. He was social distancing. Thank you, Diane, for that piece of insight. <laughs> I appreciate that. So now he's at this place of his future triumph, and now it's a place of. Now it's a place of deep agony. Deep agony. Now the word agony is kind of interesting. Verse 44, and being in an agony. Um, that describes an intense struggle, like in a wrestling match. Like you're in a wrestling match. Uh, kind of like Jacob in, in Genesis thirty-two twenty-four, when he refused to let the angel of the Lord go until he blessed him. It's kind of like that. It's a very intense struggling. It's a very intense wrestling. And so the very same Lord who had wrestled with Jacob all those years ago is now in this garden, and he's in his own own wrestling match uh, here in Luke's Gospel. Um, but it's interesting, before he does that, uh, he tells his disciples to do what? He tells them to pray, doesn't he? He tells them to pray. In one of the Gospels, uh, Matthew 26, 31, there's a reference made uh, from Zechariah 13, 7 about smiting the shepherd. 
about smiting the shepherd. And one of the remarkable aspects about Jesus is that he is such a good shepherd. And even though he's getting ready to enter into his own personal agony, his last concern is for his men. And so he admonishes his men to pray. He says here in verse 40, he says, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And then later on, when he comes back from praying, he says to them in verse 46, he says, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So he's, he's concerned for his men. And two times he admonishes his men to pray, lest they enter into temptation. You know, here Jesus, he's soon to come under trial with the Sanhedrin. But these men are soon to come under a trial of their own kind, of their own sort. And it's going to be a trial that's going to test them. It's going to test their their faithfulness. It's going to test their hearts. It's going to test their courage. Kind of reminds me what Paul says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand, take heed, lest he fall. Remember what Peter was boasting about? Yeah, he was boasting about, no, I'll never run away. I'll never run away. I think it's true for all of us. I think it's true for all of us. Job 14.1 says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Boy, if there, if there weren't a truer word ever spoken. The lot of all of us on this broken planet is troubles and trials. And this is as common as breathing. I think we see a very valuable... Uh, spiritual principle here in in the Lord's admonition to his men and I think one that uh, many may neglect you know if you ha- if you if you get in if you get yourself into a habit of prayer right if that's something you do all the time if you're in a habit of prayer you're going to discover that's a great help when trouble comes that's a great help when trouble comes. You know, you, uh, people generally pray when trouble comes, don't they? That's when they generally are motivated to pray. But we should be motivated to pray all the time because trouble is coming. So when we're in a habit of prayer and that trouble comes, it's not like I showed last week with the man in the foxhole when the bullets are flying. No, we're already in the habit of praying, so therefore we're already somewhat prepared. Somewhat prepared. You know, it's through prayer that we gain strength to bear under the trial. It's through prayer that we find comfort in our trials. It's through prayer that we endure through our trials. But if you're not used to praying, if you're not in a habit of praying, you know, then... um, so pray, get into the habit of, of, of praying. Get in the habit of praying. Now these men, these men were depressed. He says, he says here in verse 45, he says, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Right? He says, you guys need to pray. You're down. You're depressed. You need to start praying. You need to pray. You know, a sign of sorrow and depression is, is to sleep. You want to sleep all the time. The mind, the body's exhausted. The feelings of hopelessness, hopelessness and helplessness. 
you're stressed, you're worried. There's a lack of sense of peace. There's uh, this sorrow. So, you know, that takes a toll on your spirit. That takes a toll on your emotions. That takes a toll on your on your body. And you want to just sleep. You need to pray. These men have been physically exhausted. They have the stress of a busy day. The preparation of the Lord's Supper. If you read John 13 through, what is it, 17... There was some heavy discussion going on during that supper. So these men were weighed down, weighed down. And Jesus is telling them, guys, you need to pray. You need to pray. Now, there's many reasons and obstacles and hindrances to keep us from praying. But the spiritual principle is very, very important. Um... You know, I, you need to pray to endure. My daughter has an endurance ministry. And um, I hate it. No, I'm just kidding. The only reason why I hate it is because I'm so out of shape. You know, she's got us walking, what is it, two, three miles, four miles in preparation for 5K. And the only reason why I hate it is because I'm out of condition. But by the time we get to the point where... You know, the 5K shows up. I can walk the 5K. Why? Because I've been conditioned by my daughter and her exercises and her stretchings and her walkings and all this kind of stuff. The, the things that she puts us through. But it's the same, it's the same thing with prayer. If, if we're not conditioned to pray, then when trouble comes, we may find ourselves in no condition to meet those troubles so that's why you don't pray when trouble comes you pray before trouble comes you make that a a part of your life just like breathing you have to keep that living communion open between god and yourself he speaks to you through his word right well you speak to him through prayer and you keep that you keep that communication open all the time you keep it open First uh, Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. You know, I think some of the reasons why people believe that God doesn't care for them is because they haven't got into the habit of casting their cares upon a God that cares for them. You know, they just kind of let those things build up. God's got broad shoulders. He's got broad shoulders. So getting to the social distancing, it says here in verse 41, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. Now, how far is a stone's cast is up to speculations? You know, it could be a simple toss. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's like from deep center field to home plate. I don't think it was that, that far. It might be, yeah. (laughs) It could be. But it was far enough away where Jesus had privacy, but not so far away that his men could not hear his prayer. That's why we have it here in in the Bible. They heard what was going on. They heard his prayers. Now, it says here he kneeled. 
Now, typically, the Jewish, the, for a Jewish man, the typical posture for praying was to stand. Just like Brian does in, in church. He'll have us all stand to pray, right? So that's really the typical posture uh, that uh, a, a Hebrew man would do. He, he would stand praying. You've seen the pictures of the guys at the, the wailing wall there in Jerusalem. They're all standing up against the wall. That's the typical posture. So I looked up this word kneeled. And there's only two other times in the Bible that you find this particular word kneeled. Only two other times. Uh, the first one is found in Second, uh, Second Chronicles 6.13 when King Solomon kneeled before the congregation uh, when the temple was completed and he gave his, his uh, prayer of dedication and consecration and worship to God. Uh, the second mention is uh, with the prophet Daniel. Uh, three times a day he would kneel at an open window toward Jerusalem and, and pray for Jerusalem and, and pray for his people. And so those are the only two times you'll find that particular word kneeled uh, in your Bible. So we see a king who's known for his wisdom and glory and a godly man, uh, and a, a godly man of God that no recorded sin uh, is found in the Bible about him who's exiled from his home. And both of these men, one a king for, known for his glory and a man known for his, for his, um, godliness, uh, praying and kneeling. Praying and kneeling. This kind of reminded me of Philippians 2.6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. You know, if you're willing, you can see Jesus anywhere in the Bible. But wasn't Jesus a glorified king, not so much exiled from his home, but he had left his home in glory and came, a man who was without sin, and knelt there in that garden and was praying. And the word, and the word kneel to me, that speaks to me of the attitude of humility and submission and worship. And I think we see all three of those characteristics in Jesus. Humility, submission, and worship there in the garden. As far as humility is concerned, Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What was Jesus facing? Crucifixion. Death. Right? That's what he was facing. That was what was before him. You know, the human nature in all of us wants to live. We all want to live. Uh, Death is something that we don't want to talk about. Uh, Death to the normal, (laughs) healthy human being is something that's abhorrent. and regardless of how strong one's faith is about the next life, um, I don't know of too many who are in a big hurry to leave this life. Because that's, that's life. Life has that property. It, it wants to continue. It wants to keep living. It wants to hang on to, to life. 
It wants to hang on to life. And to me, if there were no aversion to death in our Lord's mind, then he really wouldn't truly be human, would he? He really truly wouldn't be human, would he? And if he were not truly human, then he would not have been able to taste death for every man. So this speaks a great deal to the humanity of Jesus. In Hebrews 2.9 it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And again in Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, Jesus took part of Adam's flesh, but he had never... He had no part in Adam's sin because the blood that coursed through his veins was God's blood. It was perfect blood. It was innocent blood. And it's not as though Jesus was someone who desired death, right? If he was someone who desired death, that would make him kind of a kind of insane or wacky. But he recognized the necessity of his death. He recognized the necessity of his death. You know, in the weakness of the flesh, that human nature, of which he is our substitute, he wholly, uh, completely experienced that same fear that every human being, every living creature faces, and that is the fear of death. That, that's what makes him our perfect substitute. He faced that same fear of death that we all fear. Yes, Ron? Lazarus, if you think about his response to Lazarus. Where he wept? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he yeah, he had the same aversion to death that anybody does. The only difference is our Lord never crossed that fragile boundary between weakness and sin. What he did was is he humbled himself. Even in the face of the fear of death, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, because he saw the necessity of his death he saw the necessity of his death so he humbled himself then there's submission again there's no way any of us can enter into our Lord's heart and mind and spirit as he knelt in that garden and wrestled Uh, his desire humanly speaking was to wish that death and God's wrath would not fall on him to me that's perfectly natural that's a perfectly natural thing for a healthy human being and I'm not taking anything away from his deity I just want you to understand he is our great high priest and he knows our infirmities he knows our infirmities his perfect humanity would have shrunk away from this this facing God's wrath and this death you see we're kind of blunted by our sins 
we can't really relate to the experience that our Savior went through. He, he was sinless. He was always, always in the will of the Father. There was always that perfect communion. There was always that perfect fellowship between him and the Father. And now he's, he's going to be the substitute of the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. And on top of that, that meant separation from God. Because that's what death, that's what the second death really is. It's separation from God. It's separation from love and all that's good and, all, and, and light and everything. And he was going to be separated from all of that. Yet, this was the whole reason why he was born. Because he was to be the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And this is the thing. And I, I don't know if, you know, I, I got to thinking about this. The Lamb of God must be distinguished from the typical Lamb that was brought as an atonement or as a sacrifice that was brought to the altar. There's a passage in Psalms 118.27 that says, God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even onto the horns of the altar. You see, when they brought those animals to the altar, they had to bind those animals to keep them from fleeing. They had to bind those animals to keep them from fleeing. They were bound to the altar. But Jesus, Jesus' submission was a voluntary free will acceptance of death as punishment of the sin of a guilty world. Isaiah 53.7 Isaiah 53.7 I'll get there in just a second. <laughs> it's here somewhere. Isaiah 53.7 says um, he was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. See, the, the animal sacrifices, some of them resisted. They didn't want to be slaughtered, so they had to be bound. But Jesus' submission was a free will offering. A free will offering. And that this agony and the struggle was real and intense, we can see because it says here in verse 44 that he, 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 his sweat was, were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's a medical fact when somebody is under great stress and duress, the capillaries will burst. And blood will be mingled with their sweat because of the stress they're in. So it was a definite struggle, wrestling going on here. 
Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted or comfort them. So this wrestling was real and intense. There had to be a decisive moment when in the fullness of his consciousness and a decision of his free will that he should be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Think about it. If this, cho- if this choice were not his own, then his death would really be a farce. He would have been an unwilling victim, forced to do the will of an angry and unyielding God. A God no better than what the heathens worship. But what he did, he did because he loved us. Because he loved us. And he loved the Father. Hebrews 5, 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cries and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. You see, the will of Jesus was crucified before the body of Jesus was crucified. In the garden, Jesus was not made to drink the cup. He consented to drink it. And praise God. Praise God that he willingly did what he did. He says here in verse 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing... Remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. I think that's the main foe that we all wrestle, isn't it? It's our own will. It's when we yield in our wrestling against the will of the Lord that we discover strength. We discover strength and victory in our lives. In Romans 6.12 and Romans 6.16 and Romans 6.19, three times Paul tells us to yield your members unto God. Yield your members to be servants of righteousness. To yield yourselves as servants to obey. Three times Paul admonishes the believers in Romans to yield It's interesting to me, it was three times that Jesus prayed this prayer, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. We find ourselves in the same struggle of our will in opposition to God's will. It's good to know that we have someone we can go to who has gone through this and we can be strengthened by his example. I think for some of us, we pray amiss. Instead of praying for strength to do God's will, maybe we need to pray 
for strength to submit or yield to God's will because that's really the, the struggle. That's really the wrestling is our yielding to what we know what God's will is. That's the real battle right there. That point of yielding. And then the third thing is worship. Worship. Where is the first place that the word worship is mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know that? Genesis 22, verses 4 through 5. That's where Abraham is taking his boy, right, up into the mount. Genesis 22, 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Here we see insight in this matter of worship. Worship. When the heart is right before God, then there is no sacrifice too great to offer. This free will offering of the heart is the only worship that truly pleases God. God loveth a cheerful giver. Someone who wants to give. And when a person, a worshiper is offering from the, from the, uh, from a free will because they, they want to, this finds great acceptance with God. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. This attitude of humility, this act of submitting his will to the Father's will and taking the cup, that is the ultimate act of worship that creation will ever, ever know about. Hebrews 10.5 says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There will never, ever, ever again be such an act of worship as what had just taken place here in the garden when Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. All those animal sacrifices, all of those who knows how many millions of gallons of blood that was spilt, none of that is in comparison to this single act of worship when the Son of Man submitted himself wholly to the will of the Father to be a sacrifice for all. And just as an angel was sent to Abraham, an angel was sent to Jesus. In Psalms 104.4 it says, Who maketh his angels spirits, 
his ministers of flaming fire. Again, we see a testament to his humanity. And a further testament that God will sustain those who trust in him and are humble before him and are submissive to him. You know, it's interesting. In um, some of your new and improved Bible translations, they'll either omit these two verses or what they'll do is they'll put down at the bottom uh, verses 43 and 44 are not found in some manuscripts or in the best manuscripts. So they cast doubt on God's word, don't they? And those omissions were made by copyists long, long time ago who struggled with the concept that Jesus, the Son of God, would need such ministering by an angel. They thought it was a sign of weakness and it spoke against his deity. And if you knew the times back then, uh, the deity of Christ was one of those things that was contested by the heretics. And what they thought they were doing was uh, protecting the deity of Jesus Christ and taking away from the heretics uh, what they thought would be proof texts to prove that Jesus wasn't God. So their good intentions uh, was not really that good at all, was it? But what these men failed to understand was, yes, Jesus was the Son of God. He was uh, God in the flesh. But at the same time, what they failed to realize is that he was also the Son of Man. He was the Son of Man. And what Luke's Gospel does is it, it highlights this aspect about Jesus. And what a comfort this is to us who knows the weakness of our infirmities. You know, we're weak, weak, needy creatures. And it's just, to me, it's comforting to know that my Savior relates to that. Relates to that. He is our perfect high priest. He is our perfect high priest. And this tells me that whenever I go to him in my weakness, I have a willing ear from my Savior to listen. And he understands. In verse 45 it says, And when he rose up from prayer, was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. You see a difference. Um... I don't know how you would put it. Attitude? I don't know if that's correct. But now what you see is a determined Savior. Having passed through the crucible of the olive press, having surrendered fully to the will of the Father, you see a a resolve, a setting of his face. His his path is clear. What now lays before him. He's ready to. He's ready to face it. He's ready to face it. He's submitted humbly. He's accepted the the only possible course. He's fully surrendered to the will of the Father. And now there's this this new strength, this new determination. And he tells his disciples, 
pray lest ye fall into temptation. I think that's why they fell. Because they failed to pray. They failed to pray. So in closing, you know, it does seem hopeless sometimes when you're in that olive press. Sometimes it does seem dark. Sometimes it seems like you're alone. Those folks that you thought would be there may not necessarily be there. Those folks that you thought would um, be your friends or your supports, they seem to evaporate, go away. But what this shows me is that even though you may be alone, you're not really alone. Because he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He knows what it is. He knows the dark days of the olive press. He knows all about that. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. The Father loves us as much and as deeply as he loves his only begotten son. And what this tells me is even though you're going through the olive press and even though you feel like you're alone, you maintain that intimacy, that relationship with the Father in prayer. And take heart and be strengthened. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the true example that he is. We're thankful, Lord God, yes, yes, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But at the same time, he, he was hungry. He got tired. He felt the heat of the sun and the, and the icy cold of, of night. He got weary. His feet hurt. He experienced everything, Lord, that we experienced. Thirst, pain. He was even pressed in the spirit at times. But Lord, from that we can just take heart, knowing, knowing that he can empathize with us and that we can go to him knowing that he does care for us. Going to him knowing that he does understand even when everybody else doesn't. We are so, so grateful for the great Savior that we have. Help us, O God, uh, to take strength from this. And as we see this new year, let let us be resolved, as he was resolved, to be more yielded to your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.